Welcome to Tech Together's Founders Journey Series. In this series, we talk with the founders and leaders from leading tech startups to learn about their founder's journey to building their current business. I'm your host, Alex Norman, co-founder of Tech Together and partner at N49P. Today's guest is Brett Belchevs, co-founder and CEO of Maple. Uh, Maple was founded in 2015, is Canada's leading platform for virtual healthcare, providing access to 4 million Canadians coast to coast. Um, Brett, can you please join me? My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, like we said, we like talking about the journey. Um, so we'll get into what Maple is and more about Maple in a bit, but love to hear about the start of your career. You started at McKinsey. Um, how did you end up there? Well, if we go back in time even further uh, than McKinsey, my, my actual first career was, was being a medical doc, being a medical doctor. So um, way back in time, I, I did medical school and, and, and this is actually pertinent even to, to how I ended up, yeah. here. but, but I went to medical school and if you were to have asked me back in the day, did I see myself doing anything like being the, the founder of a tech company? I would have said, absolutely not. And even if you'd asked me, you know, do I see myself being a McKinsey consultant, even I would have said, what the heck is McKinsey? I'd never even heard of them. Um, so I went into medical school and I had this goal originally to be a cardiac surgeon uh, I won't go into all the long details, but the short story is um, experimenting with cardiac surgery. I realized, holy moly, this is not what it's cracked up to be on TV and movies. And it's actually pretty boring and repetitive. So I realized that was not the job that I wanted to do. And by the end of medical school, after four years, having checked out a bunch of other disciplines in medicine, I came to the conclusion that actually maybe I'd gone into medical school, not really knowing what I was getting myself into, because I went in really believing that surgery was all I wanted to do. And I actually found that surgery wasn't at all what I had expected it to be. And so at that time, as I was graduating, and this was in the year 2000, um, it just so happened that McKinsey was really starting to ramp up its activities in recruiting of people who were non-traditional business graduates. And so uh, somebody had reached out to me to say, um, there's this company, McKinsey and Company, they, they love hiring doctors. And you know, it sounds like you're not really sure that's what you want to do. Would you be interested in speaking to them? I had no idea who they were, but thought it would be worth uh, meeting with them, did a little bit of research, sounded interesting. And so lo and behold, um, after seven rounds of interviews, uh, ended up getting a job interview uh, or getting a job offer from them. Uh, and so went to work for the Toronto office of McKinsey and, and was there for a couple of years and really, really amazing experience in so many ways. I mean, met amazing people, learned amazing things. But but at the end of the day, also what I realized was that being a management consultant probably was not the end state career for me either. So you went trained to be a doctor or surgeon, decided to try McKinsey instead. Here you're at McKinsey realizing this is not what you want to do with the future. What happened next? So, you know, it's funny when I was working for McKinsey, um, you know, as I said, it was really good experience in so many ways, but uh, I think it, it, it actually really helped me to understand what do I actually care about and, and what really matters to me. And, and, and what was funny is that when I went into, when I went through medical school, all, all I had been focused on was um, trying to figure out uh, what kind of surgery was the kind of surgical specialty I wanted to do. And that was all I cared about was, you know, how do I, what part of the human body do I get to cut up and, and exactly <laughs> give me satisfaction? And, and, and as I mentioned, that really wasn't the thing for me in the end. But what I wasn't really looking at is on a bigger level, you know, what else in medicine could actually give me some satisfaction. And if I look at what I didn't love about McKinsey, and I think this relates a lot just to the kinds of projects I worked on at the time and, and the year that we were in, um, what I didn't like was that I never really 
felt very good about the impact that I was achieving at the end of the day. And, it, and mind, you, mind you, if you look, you know, McKinsey's studies and, and work is often very impactful, but because of the time that I was working there, which was shortly after the dot-com boom started to fizzle, uh, a lot of the projects that I was working on were not the exciting, you know, how do we make a, a big impact kind of projects? You know, how do we change the world for the better? Um, most of the projects that we were working on were actually how do we save companies that are all of a sudden experiencing great financial difficulty from going under. And so a huge amount of the work was cost cutting. And, you know, I remember just the, the sheer amount of my work that resulted in people losing their jobs. And it, and, it, and it really didn't make me feel good. It wasn't enjoyable. And so when I look back on my medical career at the end of that uh, time at McKinsey, I look back and I said, you know, I really actually loved in medicine the fact that I was doing something tangible where where there was a real impact and it was really beneficial and I really felt the difference that I was making with with what I was doing with my days. And when I grabbed onto that, um, I realized that there were parts of medicine that I would find much more interesting to me. And so what I realized was that for me, um, surgery was kind of boring. It was very repetitive, do the same thing every day. Um, and there wasn't much room for, for variety or even sometimes creative problem solving. There's really very little room for that at all in surgery. But I, I realized that actually looking at lots more opportunities in medicine, I realized that emergency medicine was something that was much more attractive to me because there's a lot more room for uh, thinking through things on your feet. You had to really creatively manage. How did you deal with, you know, the hundred different problems you would see every single day and figure out how to get the best outcome, not for any individual patient, because yeah. You can't be creative with one patient, but you have to be creative with how you run that department. So long story short, um, I decided to go back and do my residency after McKinsey and um, went through my residency with the goal of practicing emergency medicine, which I did for, for a few years. And then um, starting in the year 2004, uh, started practicing emergency medicine after finishing my residency years. Uh, and, and I started to work in the Toronto area and a variety of smaller communities in Ontario. So interesting. So you went almost full circle. And... You became an emergency doctor. You're working around communities, and then what did you see there? Why? Why? You know, it sounded like okay, this will be a story which ends here. We've got my career figured out. What I want to be, but we're, I'm talking to you today, obviously, because you started a very successful company. So, what were the inklings? What were the signs that there was something you could do and you know, take you away from being a, you know a surgeon or a doctor? Yeah. So it's a great question, and I think you know you there's a, there's something in here which is to say that. You know, you can take the McKinsey consultant out of McKinsey, but you're <laughs> never going to take the consulting out of them. And, and I think that is the reality. So M McKinsey teaches you a way of looking at the world and thinking about the world and constantly evaluating things for areas of opportunity for improvement. And, and you'll never get rid of that. And that is not the way anybody in the healthcare system typically thinks. And particularly physicians do not think that way. So when I came back to medicine, I was practicing and I was practicing pretty happily, to be honest. I was really uh, enjoying the, the days that I had. I, I, I really cared about the problems I was solving. But on a deeper level, on an ongoing basis, I was always, as a consultant in the back of my mind, looking at how are we providing care? How does this emergency department operate? How does the broader healthcare system operate? Um, are we delivering a good experience? Are we using resources efficiently? is this as good as it could possibly be? And I would say early in my career, uh, in my practice uh, after my residency, I would say, you know, things were far from perfect, but they were, they were okay. And what became clear to me over my years of practice is every year that I practiced, uh, our healthcare system in general and the actual places that I specifically was practicing 
all of the answers to those questions I just asked got worse. So, um, you know, sure. is the patient experience good? It was getting worse every single year. Um, is the efficiency of the system good? No, it wasn't. Um, are we practicing the way that we deliver the care in the hospital? Is it as, as effective and as efficient um, as it could be? Are there ways to make it better? And the answer to that every single year was there are more and more ways that this could be optimized. So I became very frustrated and, and I started to look for opportunities to make a difference. And I tried very much to work within the system initially. So I served on committees within my emergency department. I served on innovation committees at my hospital and transformation committees and operational improvement committees and all these kinds of things. And, you know, I, I, I got really passionate about trying to make a difference in the healthcare system. And, and very quickly, what I realized is that um, there is so much inertia and so much entrenched uh, bureaucracy in our healthcare system that all of the things that I did, well, everybody said, you've got a lot of great ideas, nothing ever changed, nothing ever happened. Um, and even when we did make a difference, you know, we might open up 10% extra capacity and all of a sudden that capacity would just be gobbled up overnight and we'd yeah. be exactly where we were the day before. And, and I even got to the point of, you know, I remember speaking to a Senate panel on healthcare improvement in Ottawa and I was really excited to, to say, wow, I finally got to this level of actually trying to make a difference. And, and what I realized very quickly is, you know, good experience, got to speak to a, a bunch of interesting people there, but all it did was uh, generate a report that went and sat on the shelves. And so by, by 2013 and 2014, um, I was entirely convinced that the solutions to our healthcare system were not going to come from within our healthcare system. Uh, somebody needed to come from the outside and just like what we saw with, uh, you know, whether you like them or hate them, but just like what we saw with what Uber did to, yeah. Uh, intra-city transportation and and to the way the taxis operate, somebody had to come from the outside and demonstrate a completely different way of thinking for things to actually change. And so, so really, that combined with a whole bunch of other ideas I had is, is what led to me finally, after you know pounding my head against the pavement for so many years, deciding that you know nobody else seemed to be you know doing the things that I thought could be done. You know, I I really just came to the conclusion that if nobody else is doing this and it needs to happen at some point, you know, why shouldn't I be the one that does it? So I got to ask you, um, you know, with your background, McKinsey consultant, um, you know, someone working within the healthcare system, you know, obviously very smart, very ambitious, but that's not what screams entrepreneur to me. So did you have, uh, you know, it's just because the system and all the training there sort of fights you against taking these risks and, you know, how do you, you know, you felt like you had to make the change. You were the person, but like, how do you go about starting it? How do you go about taking that first step? And how do you know what the entry point was and give yourself the confidence? Like, cause that, that's a big leap, you know, for someone with, you know, cause your, your downside is more than your upside. Hypothetically. I don't know if that's how you thought about it. Like, I'd love to go back. I don't know if you remember what it was like then, but what was your thinking? What gave you the confidence and how do you know what you're going to start? It's a great question. And I agree with you. I mean, it's not the typical mold. Everything I came from is, is sort of low risk taking uh, professional activities. Um, uh, and, and really it's a, it was a, you know, if I look back on it, even part of me starts to think like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> why, why, why did I do this? Um, uh, not, not in that I think it's a mistake, but like yeah. what possessed me to suddenly take this big change uh, in terms of my, in terms of my uh, direction. And so the one thing that I'll say is, is um, you know, I'm, I was very fortunate in terms of my background. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs come from a place where they are putting everything on the line to start a venture. Yeah. You know, they're mortgaging their home. They're going to have no income. They're giving up a job. 
Um, and if it doesn't work, they're, they're, they're in a whole heck of a lot of trouble. They've probably wasted a lot of money. Uh, they've gotten in debt. They're going to have to quickly find another job. Um, I would say coming from the background I came from, I was very fortunate that I didn't have to take any of that risk. So um, in many respects, being an emergency room doctor is the most amazing ideal job to have if you want to be a, an entrepreneur at the beginning of a venture, not later on, but at the beginning. And the reason why is that as an emergency room doctor, you can work as many shifts as you want or not as few shifts as you want. Most emergency departments ask that you work at least three or four shifts a month, but, but you can really scale down your shifts. But also the other thing is that the shifts are at all different times of day or night. So if you want to get started as an entrepreneur, typically you, you need when you're starting your venture to be available weekdays, uh, you know, for all the business activities that will occur. And so I had the benefit that I could start moving my schedule around pretty flexibly. So I went from a place that before I started Maple, my shifts were all around the clock at, at different times of day. Uh, and I took it to a place very quickly where I moved all of my shifts to be evenings and weekends. And that way um, I could actually look at starting a company while keeping my entire income from before, which was a, a very safe and predictable income. And that makes it really easy to take the chance on starting a business because uh, I had these ideas um, and the only real cost to me, to be honest, uh, at least in the early days, was a little bit of my health and sanity um, because starting the business, not that that's Small a cost, that, that is a, that is a pretty substantial cost. But, but when, you know, when you're, when I started the business, I, I was working to be honest, probably 20 hours a day because uh, every single day I would um, wake up, I would start on Maple stuff at the crack of dawn, work on Maple all day long to try to figure out with, given that, you know, I had some co-founders, but we had no staff and no other people trying to figure out how we would bring this idea from zero to, to a real product. Um, and that would be my entire day. And then at, at you know, 5.30 PM, I would drop Maple, change into my scrubs, drive to the hospital and do a hospital shift that would take me then until, you know, one in the morning. And then I would go home, go to bed and wake up and, and rinse and repeat. And, and that, and that is what my life was like for at least the first couple of years of this company. And, and really there was no spare time. There were no vacations and there were basically no days off. Uh, and, and so that was really, really difficult. So the, the downside of it was, was real exhaustion. Although I will argue that the maple, side of it didn't really feel like work at the time because uh, I think most founders will attest to the fact that in those really exciting early days when it's all about creation it really doesn't feel like a job um, and you know so it was exhausting but but you know half of half of um, what I was doing was just so exciting that, it, that that I looked forward to it rather than um, looking forward to having time off and even when I could have time off I kept thinking about maple and working on maple related things because I cared about it and liked it so much but on the other side, you know, I, I had a great income from my main job all the way through this. And so there, there was no time ever where I thought, how am I going to pay the bills? If this doesn't work out, you know, what am I going to do in terms of finding another job? So I was very fortunate to be able to really experiment with this and figure this out in the early days without really taking that huge financial risk. So I love that. And it sounds like also you, you didn't even have time to spend money. So that was another benefit. Um, I want to go to a couple of things you said there in a bit more detail. But before I do, like, what's the flip side? Like, I do think sounds like there was some benefits beyond income, but like the mindset or skills that you brought to being a founder that came out of being an emergency doctor or working at McKinsey, what, you know, what strengths or what benefits do you have from your past? Yeah, I'd say, well, well, the emergency room work a hundred percent gave me really, really deep subject matter expertise. Um, it helped me to understand how could we tap into the physician workforce? And, and I'll get into that in a little bit more detail, because this is a really critical yeah. part of Maple's success in our model. 
but but you know how do doctors want to work you know why would we get doctors to work on our platform what would the experience have to be like for them to want to work with us um what do patients want what should an ideal patient experience look like what what are my patients day-to-day -day telling me that they really need access for that the current system is not meeting their needs um you know all of that is really important. Understanding the legislation in Canada around healthcare. What are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? How do you store records? Uh, you know, what is publicly covered? What's not publicly covered? There's so much subtlety to all of this that most people don't realize. So, so we didn't have to waste time and resources figuring all that out because that to me was just everyday knowledge that was in my head. Um, the McKinsey part of, uh, of my background, uh, it never really told me how to start a business in terms of, you know, how do you, yeah. you set up the basic functions of a business? But what it really did teach me very effectively was all the critical thinking that I needed to be able to sell this as a concept. So to talk about what's the market size, what's the market need for this? Um, why is this solution going to actually solve people's problems? How big could it get if it succeeds? What are all the sort of analysis analyses that need to be done to show an investor or a potential partner that this is something worth being a part of. So, so all of that, all of those were critical skills. And I would say the McKinsey um, background, you know, not only just the thinking part of it, I would also say it's the communication part. So McKinsey really teaches you how to very effectively communicate your thought processes to another in a way that's clearly understandable. And, and that, and that, you know, is actually something that you would think would be more of a common skill out there than it is. Like there's many people who are brilliant, but nobody can quite get what they're talking about. So it's really important to learn how to communicate. So all that added together to be really effective. But what I take, you know, I really, despite all that, I really needed partners because I have no technology or engineering background. And, and I just felt like I would get eaten alive if I tried to start a technology company without a co-founder who had a technology background. Um, and I have no background in terms of how do you start a business in terms of, you know, building an HR function and building a, a, a customer support function and building a finance function. I've never done any of that stuff before. So it was really important for me to have a, a co-founder as well who had that kind of experience to, to actually operate the day-to-day -day of the business. Because at McKinsey, mostly we worked at a much higher level yeah. in terms of strategic thinking. So um Going to the workforce point, I just want to bring this up because this, I think, is is one of the critical insights that has really made our model a success. Um, you know, and my my experience around this is actually, you know, I think one of the big inspirations for Maple in that uh, there is this big misconception in Canadian healthcare that the reason it's so hard to get access to a doctor in Canada is that we don't have enough doctors, and and that may be true. It may be that we actually don't have enough doctors, but really the the biggest part of why it's so hard to get access to a doctor in Canada is not because we don't have enough doctors. It is because we are not effectively utilizing the capacity of the doctors that we have. And if you look at the Stats Canada numbers, uh, it's clear, clear according to Stats Canada that less than 50% of Canadian doctors are working fully or full-time. And that's both general practitioners and specialist physicians. Now, Everybody I told that fact to, everybody I tell that fact to says, no way, that's not true. Every doctor I know is burned out. And so my answer to that is I look at my own life before we started Maple. And, and I was working full-time as an emergency room doctor. Full-time for me was 16 shifts a month. And after 16 shifts a month, and that was very typical for full-time number of shifts for an emergency room doctor. After 16 shifts a month, I was completely burned out of working emergency room shifts. And had anybody said to me, come do one more emergency room shift, I would have said, I would rather... I would rather do anything other than working another emergency room shift. Honestly, like you couldn't pay me enough to do another emergency room shift. However, I had 15 days off every single month. 
uh, that's a lot of time off. And during that time off, uh, a lot of the time I would be, you know, having days off when all my friends and family were at work. So there's nobody to yeah. hang out with and I'd get bored. And so if you'd asked me, you know, are you willing to do another shift on those days? The answer would have always been no. But if you said to me, hey, while I'm sitting on my couch bored at 1 p.m. on a Wednesday, would I be willing to see a few patients from my couch at home as long as I know that I can walk away from it anytime I want to? The answer would have been absolutely yes. I'd love to make a few extra dollars while I'm sitting on that couch. And so that understanding, and when I spoke to all the other docs I worked with, they all said the same thing. They said, absolutely, that would be super cool if I could actually use some of my free time where I would never work a shift. So that capacity is not available to our public healthcare system. But if I could use some of the, that extra time to actually see a few patients at times that are convenient for me. And the key part here is knowing that it's not a shift, that if I'm annoyed with, with how my day is going, I can put it down and walk away anytime. Everybody said they would be willing to, to, to actually give more time to that system. And so that's what we built. And that's what's really unique, I think, about Maple, even when you compare it to all of the other virtual care players that have really emulated the biggest problem in the physical healthcare system, which is that the only way for a healthcare provider to work is on a shift where they actually have to say for six hours, I'm going to sit and be available. What you find is that there's there's a limited number of shifts that every healthcare provider is willing to give up. And that is why we have a lack of access because doctors and other kinds of healthcare providers don't want to do more shit. So, so anyways, understanding that, and that came deeply from the reality of actually practicing as an eMERGE physician was the biggest, I think, most important uh, part of my experience to draw upon that inspired the whole design of the platform. And I think to, the, to this date is why we are able to scale in a way that no other provider of virtual care in the country has been able to scale. So, so I love that. Let me just reiterate, like, your insight, which led to Maple, was that there is actually slack in the system. The slack is because everyone, it was not apparent slack because people, so okay, we're at max capacity utilization of people, and I hate to use that word for people, but people couldn't give more time. But what you said is, hey, people want to give more time, but deliver in a different way and give them flexibility. So when you made that available, you almost had a, you know, the supply side unlocked, which is was not obvious to anyone else working in the Canadian ecosystem. A hundred percent. So, so we opened up extra capacity into the system that was not available to the system as it was previously structured. So, so I love that. Cause that was answered one of the questions. Cause I want to go back, you know, spend a bit more time at the beginning and then move forward. But like the other thing you talked about is finding that co-founder and, you know, realizing that, Hey, I don't know how, you know, I don't know operations. I don't know the technology. Um, how'd you find that? Like, you know, like how do you find that person? Yeah. So I, I was really fortunate uh, in that within my group of friends, um, both of the skill sets that I was looking for were available. And, and to be honest, I would say this to, to almost anybody out there who's starting a venture and looking for co-founders. Uh, the first place you should look is who do you know? Who do you trust? Who have you dealt with in a way that you actually understand what you're going to be getting if you have them come on as a co-founder? Because the reality of, of having a co-founder is you are in the early years of your venture going to spend more time with your co-founder than you do with your, your husband, your wife, your partner, et cetera. You, you, it's incredible how close of a relationship this is, how much time you spend with this person. So you better make sure more than anything that the person you bring on as a co-founder is a person that A, you get along with, B, you share the same values with, because values are are unbelievably important. If you don't have the same values, that will result in, in your company coming apart in, in multiple different ways. 
And then C, you know that they have the capability to deliver. So there's, you know, for me, there were a couple people that I just knew in my network. Um, one person was always my go-to whenever it was anything technological. So it's, it's our CTO, Stu Starr. He, he's just been a tech guy forever. And so he was always my go-to whenever I had any technological yeah. questions. Um, you know, he's the guy that I would speak to. And the, you know, the thing about Stu is I had already worked with him on a small project where we, where we had looked at building a platform for, for doctors volunteering across the world in, in, in charitable endeavors. Uh, and so I knew how he worked and I knew how I worked with him. So, so for me, that was just an easy no brainer. I was fortunate enough to, to, to have Stu. And then Roxana, who's the third co-founder in our company, who is our COO. Uh, Roxana is somebody who I'd known for a few years as a friend as well. And, and I'd never worked with her, but, but I'd had many, many business discussions with her over the years. She was incredibly business-minded and, and, and had started coming from a banking background and had worked in an interesting program where in banking, she'd worked in all areas. Uh, she'd started at TD Bank and worked in pretty much every part of the bank in product management, finance, operations, customer support, et cetera. And, and she had this just incredible broad base of knowledge of having actually operated in all of these areas of a business and had really practical expertise and systems to draw upon that she could actually bring into our environment. And so I also knew her work ethic because I had seen how hard she worked and, and just the dedication that she brought to bear. So for me, picking the co-founders was just something that was pretty clear and pretty evident based on within my network. Here were the people that I knew I could draw upon. So not everybody's going to be that fortunate, but I would urge as a first step before you start looking broadly out there for co-founders, really examine who do you know. And if it, there isn't somebody you know, I would say referrals are really important. So try to get co-founders that are recommended by people who you really know and, and really trust, or at least really share your values. Um, because the last thing you want to do, at least in my mind, and this would just be my personal yeah. uh, personal recommendation, is this this venture you're starting, if you're going to found a, a startup, like this is going to be your baby. This is this is in many respects, this is your child. And when you bring in uh, a co-founder, it's very much like having a, a co-parent. It's like they are now going to be the foster parent to this child that you've created. And you would never just, you know, put out a classified ad if you had a child. You would never put out a classified ad say, come help me raise this baby. You would either want somebody you really knew really well to come help you raise the baby. Or if you didn't know anybody well, you would then say, okay, to all of my friends, who can recommend somebody amazing? You, it would always be at least by a referral. And so I think you need to apply that, that same sort of thinking to who you're going to trust to actually have your baby of a venture in their hands. Um, because otherwise, again, I think the number one cited source of ventures failing more so than anything else is actually founder discord. Yeah. So it, it is founder discord from what I've read too. And since you've gone with this analogy, I have to ask, so what happens when you guys fight over about how to raise a baby? Like imagine three founders, you all have your area of expertise. So it's a bit different than parenting because suppose you have your area of expertise, but you, you know, parents often fight. So what happens when you, how do you, how do you when you have a disagreement with your founders, co-founders, how do you resolve it, especially in early days? Yeah. So I, you know, in the early days, we, we definitely, I would say we had more arguments than we do now. Um, yeah. And part of that is just that there, there were, there, it wasn't a clearly defined business and there wasn't a clearly defined set of roles uh, and responsibilities at, at that point. And so we all felt that, you know, on some level we should all be opining on everything. And, and, and I'd say that's the, the, the number one source, uh, at least for us, uh, of, of things not going well. And so I think for us, it naturally sorted itself out because 
what is very clear is that we all bring very different things to the table. So it's very clear that what I bring to the table is the subject matter expertise of the, yeah. of the product we're building. It's very clear that what Stu brings to the table is the engineering and technology expertise. It's very clear that what Roxana brings to the table is the day-to-day -day operationalizing of the business. And so the good thing is because we all come from really different backgrounds and have really different uh, spikes in terms of what we're good at, we don't really step on each other's toes uh, very often. Um, if I say this is the way the product needs to be in terms of the provider experience, neither Roxana nor Stu is going to say, no, you don't know what you're talking about because they recognize that I'm coming from a position that that's my area of expertise. And if Stu says, this is how we code this feature, I'm never going to say, no, you should code it a different way because I, I honestly don't know the first thing really about coding and, and so on and so forth. So I, I would actually say there's another lesson in that, which is that you'll see a lot of ventures where you'll see two or three co-founders that all come from the same background. Yeah. You'll see a venture where it's three engineers that are co-founders or three doctors. God, goodness, I've seen lots of medical health related ventures where it's three doctors starting together. And so the problem is when everybody comes from the same background, A, you're not getting a diversity of skills. You're not really adding on new skill sets or, or talents or knowledge with your co-founders. All you're adding on is more horsepower in terms of the same skill set. Um, but then everybody is going to step all over everybody's toes. If we had been three doctors starting this business, every discussion we had about what the doctor experience should be would probably have been all of us thinking we're the expert and you know we would have had a ton of arguments. So I, I think that natural delineation of what we're good at and what we do was really important. And then as we've grown as a business, uh, I think we've gotten much, much yeah. better at that. So over time, as it's become very, very formalized, what everybody's roles and responsibilities are in the business, it's become very, very clear what each of us works on. And I think one of the really important things as well, and I'll stop talking in a second on this topic, but is learning to let go because in the early days of the business, when it's just three of you and all of you control everything, um, you know, you feel like you, you should have your hand all over your part of the business and as the business gets bigger. And so now, you know, we have about 140 almost employees. Um, there's no way, even on the, the, you know, the experiential side that I'm the subject matter expert on the doctor experience, the patient experience, I, I can't be on top of all of that. And so I have to be able to let go of large parts of that and trust that the team that we've built under us actually can do this. And that's actually, I think, one of the big scaling challenges that a lot of founders face, which is how do you actually let go and empower a team to deliver for you? Because if you micromanage people, people don't stay with you for long. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that's come up a lot in these conversations. It's le learning to let go. Um, and again, asking a lot of questions about 2015, because I do think you are a groundbreaking company in the Canadian ecosystem. So a couple more questions. So if you've now got the team or the co-founding team, you've now got the idea. How do you capitalize? Imagine, you know, you go talk to people and they're like, well, we have this socialized healthcare system. Why do we need this? You haven't started something like 2000, you know, the ecosystem got a lot better for funding, but, but 2015 was still not many checks around to be had. So how do you get the money to actually launch? Uh, it, it was a bit of a challenge. Um, we we did not even think about going out. Well, we thought about a little bit going out to standard venture capital and 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 the, the, the bigger ecosystem. But I would say at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of money to be had for us. Um, we were a bunch of unproven founders with really just an idea. And at that point, I think the Canadian ecosystem's gotten a bit better over time, but at that point in time, typically what you saw is that the Canadian ecosystem was only writing checks to people who who really had a demonstrated track record yeah. of either their own success in their current venture or in a previous venture. Um, so what we did was, um, you know, I, I 
a lot of people thought our idea was crazy and particularly the fact that virtual care was not publicly funded at all and it was going to be private pay charges and a lot of people said we're insane no canadian will ever pay for health care that's outside of the public system really interesting that there was a survey actually that came out last month in february and for the first time ever a majority of canadians actually said that they favored the that they that they should have the right to to procure health care privately if they so choose so that was 60 percent of canadians in wow. this ITSO survey so attitudes have really changed since then but but all that being said, going back to 2015, we were told we were we were absolutely nuts. Um, and so what I did in terms of getting the first round of funding, what I realized is that we had a bit of a we had a bit of a marketplace model in that, you know, we're building the platform. And on the one side of the platform are the the suppliers, which are the doctors. And on the other side of the, the, the marketplace are the customers, which are the patients. And every marketplace has a bit of a chicken and egg problem, which is that if I bring on a bunch of doctors, but I have no patients, um, the doctors very quickly are going to disengage and leave our marketplace because it's just a waste of their time. They won't, they, they don't want to waste their time on something that never gives them business. And then on the other side of the equation, if you bring on a bunch of patients and you have no doctors there and, and you know, they try to request service and your service levels are horrible because yeah. you have no doctors, they're going to go somewhere else too. So you have to solve for that. Every, every two-sided marketplace has to solve for that to get started. And so we were facing two challenges at the same time. And so one is how do you solve for that chicken and egg of the marketplace? And two, uh, we have no money. So how do we solve for that and actually get the business started? So we actually came up with a solution that solved for both with one solution. So this is the ultimate example of killing two birds with, with one stone. And so what we did is I went out to a whole bunch of my physician colleagues and I said to my physician colleagues, um, this is the, the tech platform that we're building. It's going to revolutionize healthcare. It's going to be the greatest thing ever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we have a huge list of people that want to invest on this. We've got multiple people that, that, that want to write us checks and, and people really believe this is going to be a big thing. But we've identified that one of the most important things for us to succeed is that we need a doctor network on there to actually staff it, which is why I'm opening up investment first to my physician colleagues. You guys have first dibs because I want you working. So I'm going to let you invest in this first, so long as you commit that you're going to work on the platform in the early days and we have no patience. And so a um, lot of discussions, but the short story is we got a whole bunch of doctors to come on board as our first round of investors with commitments to staff the platform. And so not only did we get our first round of funding, but we had the chicken and egg problem solved for. So, so I love that. Um, you got them funding, you got the supply side. And so the other question I had about the launch is, you know, you open up, was it just immediate unlocking demand or how'd you get the demand side? Well, so it, it took us a year to, to build the platform. Um, it, you know, we started the company in the middle of 2015. The platform was not ready uh, to be used by anybody until, until end of the summer of 2016. And, and uh, there's a lesson in that because what I would say is that we got into a, a, a little bit of, of um, iterative paralysis on the platform over the course of that year where we got so concerned with all sorts of edge cases in the experience of the platform, all sorts of details of the experience where we kept saying, you know, we can't launch it because of this little part of the experience or that little part of the experience. And so we kept iterating and iterating and perfecting and perfecting without any real patients actually using the system. And so when we finally launched in 2016, um, and I'll get to what happened when we launched, but when we yeah. finally launched just in terms of the platform itself, what was very clear is that the things that we thought were so important that we had spent so much time iterating, nobody ever even noticed those or used those little things we'd added in. And some of the stuff 
that we hadn't even thought about actually that were big problems in, or not big problems, but, but were problems in the experience that we never even noticed became apparent right away when we were operating. And so can you give me an example of one of those? Sorry. Uh, geez, this is going back. Uh, I know it's a few long, years now. Long time. So, you know, give me a moment to, to recollect because I'll, I'll tell you the other part of the story okay. as I start to think about yeah, it. Yeah, well, just your brain can work on that while you, you yeah, tell the yeah. rest of the story. Yeah, so so what I'll say is there, there's a lesson, which is that nothing is is more important for iterating your product than actual real world usage of your product. So, so, so don't get into that paralysis. We spent a, a whole year, we probably could have built the thing in six months and been in market much faster. So there's a, there's a whole story there. Um, and, and just to, yeah, actually, I'll give you, I'll just give you one example. So, you know, of, of a feature that we put so much time into building um, was, and it wasn't so much time into building, but just so much time into the implementation. This is just one of many little features is um, at the end of your visit on Maple, and we have this feature where you can share your results with your family doctor uh, or any doctor out in the community. And so you can click a button and, and the whole sort of summary of your visit, uh, if you enter the fax number for your doctor, will be sent out to your doctor's office. Um, it's, a, it's a really valuable feature. Um, we spent so much time thinking about what is the way to implement that feature, like so much time trying to, and we'd work through this and that and the other, and eventually landed that this was the way that we were going to actually make this functionality available. I think it was probably seven months into operation, the first person that ever actually used that feature. Like nobody, yeah. we thought this was so important. Nobody used it for seven months. So there's an example for you. There's a bunch of others. And it is a really important feature. I want it to be used more. I wish it was used more than it is. But but just that's one example of us thinking about an, an edge part of the experience that we thought was critically important that just wasn't to patients. So, um, uh, so the other the other thing I would say is so when we launched to market, um, we we didn't know what would happen because we knew access to healthcare was awful. Not not as awful as it is now. It's continued yeah. to get more awful every year, but it was pretty terrible. And we had this feeling that if we that once we opened it up and told people, yes, you can speak to a doctor in five minutes that the floodgates would open and, and we would be swamped. So we were really careful in the early days. Um, when we turned on the system, which was in October of 2016, um, we did no advertising. We didn't make any big announcements, no PR, no anything. And we just told a select group of friends to say, hey, you know, this is now available. You can use it. And if you want to tell any friends about it, and we thought, you know, let's, let's see what happens organically. All that being said, it was about a month till we got our first visit. So... <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, you know, and, and I, I think that that sounds pretty common. I remember I started an e-commerce business. We launched and, okay, is it up? Is it working? You know, what's going on? So how, how did you crack the, the demand side then? Yeah. So we, you know, we, we very quickly realized um, organically, you know, you watch, you know, you watch these movies like Social Network, uh, yeah. you know, the founding of Facebook, et cetera. And it just looks like it all just happened on its own. It was such a great idea that you get one person on there and they tell a hundred friends, you tell a hundred friends. And next thing you know, you've got millions of users. And there probably are a few businesses where that's happened, but very, very rare. Uh, even, you know, businesses like Facebook, that didn't happen quite as easily as I think the movie would have made you believe. There's a lot of work that and a lot of thought that goes into the strategy of how you get it to grow that way. So for us, cracking demand, uh, what became very clear to us is that we needed to get the word out more broadly and we needed to target people that actually needed our service. Because one, one of the big challenges that you have in the service that we provide is in the moment, when you have a medical problem, so you've got a urinary tract infection or a sore throat, very easily 
you can be converted to, to, to the decision that you will use maple to solve your issue right now. If you don't have any medical need, if you're feeling perfect here today, why would you ever want to yeah. sign up for maple? Why would you ever use us? And even if you created an account, if I got you to create it today, there's a really good chance six months from now, when you have a medical need, you're going to forget about this maple app that you create an account on six months and you will move on. So, so for us, um, there were two things that we did. So one was we realized we needed to spend a little bit on advertising and we needed to be very use case targeted in our advertising. So we needed to use things like Google AdWords, which uh, has progressively become a more difficult thing over the, over the years because of competition and, and the, the strat and sort of the bidding dynamics in the background has become much more economically unfeasible for that to be a challenge. But back in the day, it was a lot more affordable and made a lot more sense. But if you could put in a, a Google AdWord for anybody searching for the term UTI and say, you know, you'd pop up an ad that would say, got a UTI, guess what? We've got a service that can get you treated for your UTI in, in five minutes. Uh, that's a great way to get people on board. Yeah. And and then similarly, you know, PR, even though a lot of people sort of spit all over PR as being ineffective, because what we were doing was just so different from anything that had ever been done. We, we felt that if we did a little bit of PR, we could get a lot of impact out of it. So we hired a PR firm to actually do a, a formal launch. And that was um, later in, in 2016, towards the end of 2016. And that PR firm actually got a lot of traction. Like a lot of the media were fascinated by what we were doing. So we didn't spend a lot of money and it wasn't a big PR firm, but they were able to get us slots on a whole bunch of morning shows and, and a, got a bunch of articles written about us. So suddenly, you know, it wasn't like a sudden avalanche of business, but if you combined the inbound, uh, inbound effects of that advertising, that when people actually had a use case we were getting them in and they were trying us out and then they when they had an amazing experience they started telling their friends like that what was really cool is seeing all the reviews and this is when you you know you've got a bit of product market fit is when you're looking at the reviews when people are are writing your reviews saying holy wow I'm, I'm 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 speechless in terms of the fact that i've never seen a doctor this easily before this is like changed my life and so we'd see these reviews and that was when we said, wow, we're really onto something. And, and people would start to refer their friends and we'd get you know, referrals and inbounds. The PR started to generate awareness. So a lot more people started creating accounts to say, just when I get sick, I'm going to actually potentially use this. And all of that eventually snowballed into, we had enough, and it wasn't crazy busy, but we had enough traction that we were able to raise a larger and more meaningful round of financing at that point in time. And we had become quite smart in terms of how to generate demand for the business at that point using things like search engine marketing, yeah. where we could then very effectively right use up. the funds that we had raised to continue to grow the business. And then it kind of snowballed from there. So I love it. You have a flywheel going. We could, you know, be great point, point to end the story here, but got to ask a couple more questions. One, everything's going well. It took you, you know, a year and a half to launch or, you know, and you've unlocked demand. You now got a flywheel going. Then 2020 happens. Um, I imagine COVID was the biggest opportunity, the biggest challenge to happen yet. So like high level, what did COVID do to you? How, like what were the challenges, what were the opportunities, how to change your business? Yeah. So, you know, the challenge, there's multiple challenges from it. So I'll start with that. So the, the challenge, first of all, was just operationally. Um, it was, it was like a rocket ship attached to the demand for the business in the, in the first few weeks of COVID. So our, our business volumes more than tripled essentially in the span of two weeks. And so that sounds like a great thing. And in and, and, and a broader spectrum, it is, but no business is built to triple in size in, in, in two weeks. So 
if you think about it, we didn't have enough doctors to do triple the volume. We had always been carefully growing the doctor network. Um, we didn't have enough customer support staff to handle the number of inbound customer support tickets. We didn't have enough uh, operational staff to manage some of the things like, you know, laboratory results, et cetera, that come in. So every part of the business was under immense strain. Even our servers um, were not set up for that sudden increase. You know, we, we were set up to grow a hundred percent a year, which is a yeah. healthy rate for a startup. We were not set up to grow, you know, 200% in two weeks. So, so it was, it was crazy. I and mean, we had to get everybody in the company doing the things like we took everybody off of all the, their normal jobs. So our mar entire marketing team, I said, just stop all advertising. Like we don't, we can't handle any more demand So stop advertising, stop marketing. And we actually put our whole marketing team onto customer support. You know, we, you know, the, all the founders were doing customer support. I remember I was on customer support till 4am every night, almost during those first couple of weeks. And we went on an insane, like we were very lucky. We had a long wait list of doctors that wanted to work on the platform. So we went on an insane onboarding campaign to onboard all the new doctors that were on our wait list directly onto the platform. Usually that this onboarding that took, you know, a much longer period of time, we were accelerating it like crazy. So all that being said, we managed and we caught up and our systems didn't crash. And we, you know, we, we changed our, 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 our agreement with Amazon for servers to something that was yeah. much scalable and all that stuff happened. And we came out of it the other side and that was great. But the other the other big challenge around COVID was our entire business model um, all of a sudden became something that was viewed differently in that prior to the pandemic, virtual care was clearly not an insured service by government anywhere in Canada. And then all of a sudden after the pandemic, governments jumped in and said, yes, we're going to create billing codes for this. And so in Canada, you're not allowed to privately charge for things for which there are billing mm -hmm. codes. And so all of a sudden, the entire legal groundwork upon which our business sat was all of a sudden disrupted and we had to really think through what was the what was the the paradigm for our business in this new world of public funding and the bigger challenge with that is not that there was public funding um because we could adapt to that and make our whole business public funded it was that all of the public funding that got announced was was announced as temporary due to due to the pandemic so if we had gone and built a crazy amount of systems to now build the public system and then two months later they said yeah. okay COVID's over we get rid of this funding then you know, what, what do we do then? So that was all very challenging to manage with that. I'll flip over to the opportunity side. The opportunity side was immense um, in that prior to the pandemic, tiny percentage of Canadians had ever seen a doctor virtually. Most Canadians didn't know that you could do this. They didn't believe that it could work. Even most Canadian doctors, because they had never been trained to practice virtually, did not believe that virtual care was something that they should be doing. And all of a sudden you fast forward to April of 2020 and in April of 2020, 70% of all medical visits in April of 2020 were virtual. So now we emerge into a world where nobody doubts that virtual care works. Almost everybody has had a virtual visit. Almost every physician has delivered a virtual visit. So a huge part of our job up until then, which had been all about how do we, how do we get credibility? How do we get people to believe that this is even safe, that it works, that it's legal? All of that disappeared. Our patients didn't need to be persuaded anymore that this was something valid. Doctors didn't need to be persuaded. And so the whole landscape changed for us. And you know, now it, nowhere close to 70% of visits across Canada are being delivered virtually. Yeah. It's probably closer to about 20 to 30%. But that compares to under 1% prior to the pandemic. So we're looking at a fundamentally altered landscape. And you don't see that kind of transformation in any kind of industry ever that quickly. Yeah. So I love that. Uh, yeah. It sounds like interesting challenges from like a logistics and operations perspective, it, remaking your market and potentially how you 
charge customers. Um, there's three more things I have to ask before, because you've been very generous with your time. Um, one is, you know, the next thing that happened in 2020 is you did this large round where Loblaws invested a lot of money. I think there's a partnership with Shopify, uh, Shopify Shoppers Drug Mart. Um, why take that opportunity? What was the benefit? Like, what was the rationale there? It's, you know, you seem to be killing it as an independent company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what was, what, what was the logic behind that? Yeah. So, you know, we, we were not planning on raising funds at that point in yeah. time. Um, you know, the world went crazy around us and all of a sudden there was opportunity all over, all around us. And, and it, it, I've never been in an environment where this, where fundraising became so easy, to be honest, it was a really bizarre time. And, and I don't know that we'll see that again for a long time. So I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. But at the end of 2020, particularly for people in our industry, which was now heralded as a, as like the go-to industry to be in, I was getting funding offers, financing offers, literally my, my, my email was blowing up with, with, with venture capital firms and strategic investors that wanted to either invest in us or buy us. So it was this crazy environment. And so at some point in time, I remember having a discussion with, with our executive team and our board to say, you know, I know we didn't um, plan on, on raising funds at this point in time, but money is raining from the heavens in terms of offered investment. And and we may not get another opportunity like this. This opportunity may not exist in a year or two. So given that the, just how plentiful the money is, uh, we should think about taking some funding because this will help us to grow in the future and secure our future. Um, but we should also think about what is the strategic value that the person who invests or the entity that invests in us brings to bear. So when we thought about who to take funds from, we could have taken funds from any number of VCs, both Canadian and American. Um, and that would have been great. It would have been cash in the bank, but I think that's all it would have been is cash yeah. in the bank. versus what is great about taking funds from something like shoppers drug mart is that it is one of the most trusted brand names in, in Canadian healthcare. So having their stamp of approval on us uh, would make a massive, a massive difference in our mind in terms of how does the average customer view our credibility? How do businesses view our credibility? How does government view us as a credible partner? And so that that was a massive influential partner, but that part that massive influential factor. But then, additionally, uh, the other factor was we wanted a company that could drive business to us to help us to grow. And so, Shoppers Drug Mart has the largest uh, customer base of anybody in the healthcare industry in Canada. They got 16 million PC Optimum members, hmm. and those are very loyal customers. So. When we think about a business that we run, which is partly direct consumer, partly B2B, but we think about the greatest challenge in growing the direct consumer business is the customer acquisition cost. To have a partner who can come on board and now give you 16 million potential referrals with a zero customer acquisition cost, that is very compelling. So if I added all of that together, we said of all the offers that are out there, um, this one is more than financially competitive. It's a great offer, but the strategic opportunities that it offers to the business are unrivaled by anybody else that's looking to invest. And that's why we went down that path. I love it. Um, Cause you know, outside and you never know what's going in and I love the explanation. So I just want to fast forward to today. Um, and I feel like the healthcare landscape in Canada and Ontario has changed again. Everyone feels like the system's broken. Everyone worries about access or talk about privatization. Um, there's no, it seems like there's a lot of talk and no strategy or even thought. So, how does a company like yours, you know, plan and operate and function in this environment? And what's your recommendation to people that are trying to provide more services to Canadian healthcare uh, or help uh, Canadian population? 
Well, I, I'd probably say to any founder who, who's looking to get involved in, in a business that's based on the Canadian healthcare system to, to probably look at another industry, but <laughs> it's, it's really challenging. But, but what I would say is, is you really have to be nimble. Uh, the landscape shifts under our feet on almost a daily basis. And so we have to have a business that can uh, reinvent itself really quickly and uh, be adaptable, which we have proven to, to be time and time again. Um, but overall, you know, I think what is important is if you have really good product market fit, meaning if there is an obvious and dire need for the service you deliver, and if you deliver that service really, really well, and you're meeting the needs of lots of people with what you do, all of the other things are peripheral things to figure out. So, you know, the landscape shifts around us. The government is all over the place. The laws are shifting. You know, what does the government cover? What do they not cover? You know, what are regulations around privacy, security, et cetera, et cetera. all of that is challenging and, and has to be has to be figured out on an ongoing basis. But at the core of it, what's clear is that there is a dire shortage of access to healthcare in the country. What I spoke about at the beginning of this podcast, which is that nobody else knows how to get extra capacity out of physicians in this country other than us. We can deliver that healthcare that nobody else is able to deliver. We are uniquely uh, experiencing product market fit. And so as long as we have that, we will continue to succeed because we'll navigate all the other challenges, but our business keeps growing, you know, yes. getting more clients, direct consumer clients, B2B clients, governments want to work with us. As long as we have product market fit, as long as we have good product market fit, the rest will figure itself out. I love the term using as long as we have product market fit, because one thing I've learned from this is also we see lots of businesses have product market fit, losing that to rediscover it. So I think that's very key. Um, last question. Um, What's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want to know more about what you think, they want to reach out, they have, hey, you know, I've got a great idea. Is it email, Twitter, and what is it? Yeah, find, find me on Twitter. It's, it's probably the best place. I, 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 you know, Twitter's a scary place sometimes, so I, <laughs> I sometimes go quiet there, but but I do try to, to interact. So uh, my handle on Twitter is Brett Bell, B-R-E-T-T-B-E-L. So so come find me there and, and feel free to say hello. Thanks so much, Brett. I, I love how articulate you are, how you explain a complex system really clearly and the time we delved and how you launched. Uh, thank you so much for your time. For people listening, um, if you enjoyed us, make sure you share it with a friend. Make sure you subscribe to uh, the Founders Journey podcast. You can find it on Spotify or Apple, wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. Also, if you want to know what else is going on in the ecosystem, you can subscribe to the newsletter at techto.org backslash newsletter. And finally, if you have suggestions on you know, someone, some founder we may have missed and we haven't covered yet, email your suggestions to me at alex.techto.org and we'll see you next time.